or mankind has indeed killed their creator. And again, if the story ends there, it's tragic. It's the Empire Strikes Back without the return of the Jedi. It's Rocky One without Rocky Two. It's Infinity Wars without your endgame. But because Jesus came, God made him who knew no sin become sin on our behalf that we may become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Jesus Christ made a way back to God where there was none because he became man. And what he did effectively was flip the script. And when I say he flipped the script, I mean he flipped the script literally. Because when you look at the book of Genesis and you look at the Old Testament, what you have is this. You have a live tree through which comes death. But now in the gospel, what we've seen is this. A dead tree, and now life is possible. And that's the gospel message. So whereas a live tree brought forth death, his sacrifice on a dead tree means that we have the possibility of life. So it's fair to call Jesus Christ the way maker. And today it's because of his love that was first shown us. And now uh, we have the ability to respond to that love because he's given us his Holy Spirit. What we see in the passage today are the followers, those that loved him, not understanding exactly how these events are unfolding, how the one that they have given their lives to and followed and put their faith in over three years, now they have seen that he's dead on a tree. But today we're going to see an awakening. And through the events that we see today, we're going to take a look at three different sections of scripture one we're going to take a look at a man named joseph of arimathea and the lesson through watching joseph's life is that there are moments to be seized so because of the way maker there are moments in this life to be seized but then we're going to look at a group of dedicated women and what we're going to learn through them is there's a message to be spread and then when we take a look at mary finally there are meetings that are scheduled. Meetings that are scheduled. Divine appointments, if you will. And in each case, though they are lost and not understanding and struggling, uh, their love motivates their action to continue to show their dedication and commitment to Jesus. And because of that, they're in the perfect position to have a God experience. Love is always a great motivator. It is the best motivator. It really is the only motivator. And so first we're going to take a look at Joseph. So let's take a look at Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 42, we go back and we say, Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead and summoned the centurion. He asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body of Joseph. Then he brought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen, laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph observed where he was laid. Okay, so here we have... Joseph of Arimathea stepping out of the shadows. Emerging for a moment such as this. And he shows up after the story looks like it's over. That's when Joseph of Arimathea shows up. Right? 
As a hospice nurse, I'll tell you this, there's only one thing that's more final than seeing someone take their last breath. And that is when someone hands you their ashes or when they're lowered into the ground or when they steal the tomb. I think that's one of the only things that's more final, what they do with the deceased. There's something incredibly final about it. Now, interestingly enough, when you look at the Old Testament, burial rituals were very important. It was important for Abraham to have Sarah buried in a certain place, that Abraham would be buried in a certain place, that Jacob would be buried in a certain place, that they did something specific with the bones of Joseph. But here's something really cool. If you take a look at the emergence of Jesus from the tomb, I challenge you to find any incident in the New Testament where burial rituals are mentioned ever again. You won't find it. As a matter of fact, even D.L. Moody as a young man was suddenly called upon to preach a funeral sermon. He hunted all through the four Gospels trying to find one of Christ's funeral sermons, but searched in vain. He found that Christ broke up every funeral he ever attended. Death could not exist where he was. When the dead heard his voice, they sprang to life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. But now in the final few verses of chapter 15, we have Joseph of Arimathea. Now, you remember Joseph's story through the Gospels, right? No, don't even shake your head going, yeah, we do, because you don't, because it's not there. It's a trick question, all right? You don't remember it, because Joseph of Arimathea is not mentioned until this moment, but he is mentioned at this moment in all four Gospels, and here is what we know of him. All right. The book of Mark tells us he was a prominent council member who was waiting for the kingdom of God. The book of Luke says he was a counselor, a good man and just. The book of Matthew says he was a rich man. And John tells us that he was a secret follower of Jesus. Now, all of these are important. And this is why we have four Gospels, because they kind of give us a panoramic view of different circumstances and different people. And so what you see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not contrary but complementary to one another as they explain these different circumstances. Now, while he followed Jesus secretly, the kind of tomb that he bought would be necessary to explain a resurrection event. The kind of tomb that they could roll a stone in front of. That didn't describe the way everybody was buried back in that day, and only a rich man would be able to afford that. And so he steps into the picture for a moment such as this. Now, he was secret before he was in secret. He was following Jesus in secret. But now check it out. He emerges from the shadows when the apostles are nowhere to be found. The people that have been part of the story for the last three years following Jesus, these guys, if you take a look at these verses, they're, just, they're nowhere. They're hidden. And yet you have Joseph of Arimathea boldly going to Pilate. Why is he going to Pilate and asking for the body of Jesus? The only discernible motive is love and a commitment to the one that he followed for so long. Nowhere in Scripture do we get a hint that Joseph nor the women that are involved in these scenes really truly believe that he's going to be resurrected. Nor the disciples, yet they're still committed and out of love they still continue to serve, though they don't necessarily understand what's happened. Now you're saying, well, Pastor John, can you prove that point? 
Well, in a couple of minutes, we're going to see that when the women went to the tomb on the morning of the resurrection, they brought spices to anoint the dead body. So they're still serving, and the only discernible motive is their love for God. It's always the best motive to serve is our worship and our love. If you're not serving for that, don't serve. But what if nothing gets done in the church? If nothing gets done, guess what? We're going to come here and we're going to worship every Sunday. We're going to open up the Bibles. But the best motive to do anything in the church, please don't ever do anything to say, well, you know, we know that you need this done, Pastor John. Don't do it for that. I say this repentantly to you. Because there are times that I've wanted to see something get done and I've probably even guilted some of you. Listen, don't do it for that reason. Rebuke me, send it back to the pit. Do it because of your worship and your love for Him. That's the best reason to do anything. And when you do, what's going to happen is this, is that you're going to be given moments. right? Because of the way maker, because of what Jesus did, because of the journey He took, there are moments to be seized. Joseph, for a moment such as this, his wealth is going to be utilized. Not any disciple would be able to get audience with Pilate. You understand that, right? Peter, James, and John, the fishermen, would not necessarily be able to get audience with Pilate. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy council member. But it still took a lot for him to go before Pilate for a moment such as this. Now, again... This is really important. If we want, how many of you want more of those God moments in your life? Anybody? Everybody? That's why you're here, right? That's why you came to church on a Sunday morning. You want these God moments in your life. Understand this: is that in Scripture, when you take a look at the stories of Moses and you see Joseph and you see Daniel, you see these men just being faithful where they're at. And what happens is that God opens up the moments. There's a great example in the book of Esther. If you'd like to turn there, it's Esther 4. Now, a little bit of background on the story of Esther. Here you have this uh, young Jewish orphan. And you have King Ahasuerus. And the king has dismissed his wife because she would not dance before him while he and his cohorts were drunk. And so he dismisses his wife, and now he's kind of sitting there saying through the story, well, now now what? And so his men try to comfort them, and they say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have like a little game of bachelor, you know? And uh, you know, and so we're going to bring these women before you, and the one that's chosen, unbeknownst to him, is this young Jewish woman named Esther. Now, the king doesn't know that she's Jewish. And when the king's general, Mordecai, comes to him, no, Haman, I'm sorry. When the king's general Haman comes to him and says, listen, we need to extinguish the Jews, the king says, okay, let's do it. Esther's uncle Mordecai sends an SOS to Esther. We need some help. And because of your position, you're in a position to talk to the king. And so we look at Esther 4, verse 4. And again, now, Esther's uncle Mordecai is at the gate and he's weeping in sackcloth and ashes. 
And verse 4 says, So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent clothes to Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, from whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hathak went to Mordecai in the city square and was in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasurer to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of a written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go in the, to the king and make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hathak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. So you get what's happening. Mordecai is sending an SOS through his man, and uh, then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's province, this is Esther's response, know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. So Esther says, listen, even though I'm the queen, I can't be going in there without him asking me to, without him calling for me, I'm putting my, I would be putting my life on the line. Mordecai says this, verse 13, and Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Listen to Mordecai's response to his niece. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than any of the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for a time such as this. For a moment such as this. I mean, do you know the story of Esther? Do you know that it's one of the only books in the Bible that God isn't mentioned? The children of Israel are on the verge of extinction. <clears throat> And Esther, 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 Esther is placed in a key moment so that she can go before the king and in a very beautiful picture of Christ make intercession for the people. And that's the story of Esther for a moment like that. See these moments throughout Scripture. Men and women provided with moments here we're going to see Joseph of Arimathea step up. We're going to see the women step up. And here's where I'm really, really kind of excited about the next few weeks. Well, besides these messages, um, in a couple of weeks we're going to be getting into the story of Ruth. And we just so happen to be talking about these great and amazing women of God. Esther, Ruth, Mary here, what we're looking at in our scripture today. And, um, and it's just amazing to look at how God uses these women so mightily. But for Esther, it's a moment to be seized. And Esther goes before the king, and because of that, you read the rest of the story, but it's awesome. Okay. Um, go back to our passage in Mark, and um, as we're continuing to think of seizing the moments, what does that look like today? 
What does that look like for the church today, seizing the moments? 2006, the college football world started noticing a young man named Tim Tebow playing for the University of Florida, the Gators. And um, one of the things that set him apart and that grabbed national attention was his uh, desire to glorify and honor God. As a matter of fact, he started doing something on the field which shocked everybody. All right, It was called T-bowing. Now, if you go to www.yourdictionary.com and you look up T-bowing, it's an actual term. And it says when somebody takes a knee in order to pray, no matter what anybody else around them is doing, that's the definition for T-bowing. All right? Because Tim had set out to honor and glorify God. So now I'm thinking this. It's like, okay, they named pray, they renamed praying after Tebow because of his influence. So now I'm thinking, my last name is Panico. And I'm thinking, well, what would they rename it when I pray? Now when I pray, well, he's Panicoing. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, but Tim Tebow had taken the moment to honor God. Now here's what happens is that he is drafted into the NFL. His determination to still glorify and honor God. Something very interesting happened on uh, January 8th, 2009. Some of you know where I'm going with this already. In the BCS championship game, this is actually when he was with the Gators, I'm sorry. Then, then Florida quarterback Tim Tebow wore black, uh, wore eye black with the inscription John 3.16, a reference to the Bible passage that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his own one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's when he was with the Gators. Now check this out. January 8, 2012, when he's with the NFL. Three years to the date that he caused millions of football fans to Google the meaning of John 3.16, Tebow played his first NFL game against the Pittsburgh Steelers. And Tebow threw for 316 yards. Tebow averaged 31.6 yards per completion. Wow. The highest single game postseason completion average in NFL history. Ben Roethlisberger's second quarter interception, which led to Matt Prater field goal and a 17-6 Broncos lead, came on third and 16 BTW. The Steelers finished the game with a time of possession of, listen to this, 31 minutes and six seconds. And at the time, Tebow threw the game-winning 80-yard touchdown pass to uh, Thomas, the NFL's longest postseason pass in overtime history, CBS's final quarter hour overnight ratings were, yes, a 31.6. This is all documented. All right? And so here is a moment to be seized, you think. But now here's the deal. When Tebow, well, a couple of years later, was not re-signed, either because of his unorthodox play or because of his controversial Christian faith, when he wasn't re-signed, he turned away from God. No! He's still determined to honor and glorify God. He creates this thing called the Tim Tebow Foundation. And because of the Tim Tebow Foundation, what happens is this, is that last Friday night, uh, what they have was this thing called Night to Shine, where now somebody who had been given moments and seized moments now provides moments for special needs boys and girls to be kings and queens at their prom. It's an amazing thing. Each little boy, each little girl at the end of the night is crowned to be king or queen. They're given the tiara, they're given the crown, and all of this. And I say this because maybe you don't have the platform of a Tim Tebow. That's fine. Here's what you do have. For the moments that are in front of you, you have a sphere in front of you. 
All right, you have each one of you has different talents and giftings and desires and passions. All right, and there are things in front of you to do. Whether it be somebody that's in school and you're playing sports or you're doing art or you are, uh, I don't know, you're in the workplace or I don't know, you're in Winn-Dixie or you're in Walmart. You're given moments for those that are looking, moments to be seized because of the way maker, because of what Jesus did on the cross. As long as you have a pulse, you have a purpose and you walk out and you say, you know what, okay, Lord, show me. Is it possible that a lot of us are missing moments because our schedules are so full of us that we don't have room for him? So we want to hear from God. We want to see God. But here's the thing. We have to resolve to pursuing God. Pursuing the person of God. You know, I passed out a... Um, I passed out an article at Wednesday Night Study on how to know the will of God. Boy, is that something we can like bite into, right? That's something that we can sink our teeth into. How do you know God's will? There's nobody here that doesn't want to know it. But one of the things that it says is this, is that, listen, if you want to pursue God's will, then you have to understand that you have to first pursue the person of God. Because I can even make known his will into an idol. When I saw that, it kind of floored me. I kind of sat there like, wow. All right. So it says pursue the person of God, because that's what the Bible tells us, right? It says to seek God first. Seek God first. Not what God can do, not what God's going to do, but seek His person first. Waking up to celebrate and shine for Him and resolving yourself to saying, listen, these are the things that are important to God. And so now they're important to me. These things are going to take a priority in my life and they're not going to take a back seat anymore. And then what you're going to find is this, there are going to be so many moments to seize. You're not going to know what to do with them. <coughs> So Joseph of Arimathea, well, he takes the body, wraps him in linen, lays him in a tomb, hewn out of rock, rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. We get into chapter 16 now. It says, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? So again, they come with their spices. They come to anoint the body. This was typical. This was traditional. And they don't know how they're going to move the stone. So they go in faith and out of commitment and out of love, not necessarily understanding not only the circumstances, but what they're going to do when they get there. All they do is they go with their spices. Now let's take a look at the stone for a second. What is the stone like? All right. Well, the stone, uh, the way that it's described, uh, it's about four to six, uh, by, by historians, it's about four to six feet in diameter. Um, it was probably about one inch thick, maybe a little bit more than one inch thick, and they believed that it weighed about a thousand to two thousand pounds. Um, it was, I guess the way it's described is that so large a stone positioned against the entrance, a sloped channel assisted the guards in rolling the stone. A deep groove cut in bedrock at the tomb's entrance firmly settled the stone. 
At the urging of the chief priests, Pilate further secured the chiefs uh, Jesus' tomb by placing a Roman seal on the stone. So it's four to six feet in diameter. It would take several men to move. A couple of people could move it into place, but it would take more than that to move the stone out of place. And yet, here are the women. And I love the verbiage here. All scriptures inspired. It says here, very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun, S-U-N, had risen. Again, we talked about last week how God even gives us these pictures of resurrection in nature when the sun comes up every new day. It's a picture and it establishes a longing for new life and a new day and a new fresh start. But they said among themselves, who will roll the stone away from the door of the tomb for us? I was listening to a message by Tim Keller the other night and he says something really cool here. He said a lot of us think that the stone was rolled away so Jesus could get out stone was rolled away so that we could get in and see that there was no one there. No one there. And so the women get there and the stone is rolled away. And it's here because of this moment. They see and hear something extraordinary. They're the first to get the message. The message to be spread. Watch how it plays out starting in verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. Church, just say that. He is risen. He is risen. If you believe it, say he is risen. He is risen. All right, he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter. you got to love that. Go tell his disciples oh, and Peter. <laughs> Peter is still kind of thinking, oh, what's going on with him, all right? He just denied Jesus three times. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you into Galilee, that you will see him as he said to you. Stop right there. They have just become the recipients of the most important message in all of human history, and that is that Jesus Christ had risen. They were put in a perfect position to hear, simply going there because they love Jesus, going with spices, not necessarily knowing what to expect, but their love and their devotion and their commitment overrode the circumstance and the emotion of the situation. And because of that, they were in a perfect position. And so this brings us to the second point. So, so the first point was this, is that because of the waymaker, there are moments to be seized, but because of the waymaker... Well, what we see with the women is there is a message to be spread. There is a message to be spread, and that message to be spread is that He is risen. If your life doesn't revolve around that truth, then you're not living. That's our hope. That's our peace. That's our joy. That's our love. That's our motive. That's our purpose. If it doesn't revolve around that message. You see, if this doesn't happen, Christianity's dead. It's as dead as the man that died on a cross. Oh, by the way, he wasn't God. Alright, if he didn't rise from the dead. As history says, oh, he would just be another great prophet or a great moral teacher. No. 
He's God of gods, hanging on a cross and now resurrected. No other religion can boast a Savior that came, was humiliated on a cross, but then rose from the dead and overcame sin and death and hell and all the things that petrify us. the only thing that can explain Christianity. There is a series on TBN that I will recommend. Uh, it's called Inexplicable. And the guy that does the Allstate commercial, he's the host of it, um, Dennis Haysburg. And, uh, and it shows basically how Christianity defied all odds. Think about it. It comes from Judaism, right? It springs from Judaism. So were the Jewish leaders for it? No, then how could it survive? The Roman government was definitely against it. How could it survive? The only thing that explains it is that it is an act of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, you have this message to spread, but you have to be in a position to hear. Now, first of all, we're in a good place to do that today, right? No one would argue that one of the best places, one of the places that I hear most from God is, is, is in church. When I'm with brothers and sisters in Christ, when I've got the Word open, being taught, in the power of the Holy Spirit, right now you're in a great position for anyone listening to hear from God. But here's the thing. What the Waymaker did was he placed his Holy Spirit in here because here's what you know. Though you're in a position physically to hear from God there might be some that are not in a position here they're holding on to sin they're holding on to some kind of resentment they're holding on to something and because of that what it's doing is it's impeding your ability to hear what God desires to say to you it's impeding your ability to hear the message I don't think I could be in a better place to illustrate this when it comes to cell phones, you are in the fortress of solitude in this room. You know it. All right, you could have an iPhone, you can have Verizon, you can have the best service, you could have the best phone. You know, I tell my phone. All right, you could have the best phone, you have the best service, but in this room, it doesn't matter what you have. You can't hear. All right, and so what do we have to do? We have to walk around the building and we say, okay, those uh, four words, can you... Thank you, thank you, Father. Can you hear me now? Okay? Can you hear me now? Now, here's the thing. We want to be in a position to hear God. Do you want to be in a position to hear God, right? All right, so here's what we do. When you pull out your phone, guys, don't put the porn on the phone. Put the you version on the phone if you want to hear from God. Stay out of the strip clubs. And you go to your Bible studies. You want to hear from God? It's a no-brainer that, you know, we want to put ourselves in a better position. Now, here's the thing. God can still speak to people when we put ourselves in bad circumstances. He does that. That's His grace. Right? That's His grace. But let me explain grace to you. Because even if I can come up here even having studied, if I'm able to say anything that's a worthwhile to your heart... That's His grace. That's His grace. And so, we want to hear what God has to say. 
But do you want to know another way that you can back up your hearing? Because we want to hear from God. We'd like to have that constant Christ consciousness that we sometimes talk about, that we're hearing from God. Um, but here's another way we can kind of back up our hearing. And this might surprise you. By not telling people what we're learning. Does this make sense? Why? Because telling people what we're learning, sharing the gospel, taking the thing that you learn in church and saying, okay, God, you taught me something today, obviously so I could apply it to my life, but also so I could take it out to someone else and apply it. And if we don't do that, what happens is we clog up, we, we clog our hearing from the back end. So you want to hear from them. Start resolving to listening to them, spending that time without interruption listening to them. I would challenge you the joy of saying, listen, I'm just going to sit here with my Bible and I'm not going to, I'm not going to look for answers. I'm just going to listen to you. I'm just going to immerse myself in you. I'm just going to, I just want to spend time with you. The Father's heart, that's what I want from you. I want to spend time with you. You're my kids. And when we do, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to tell you some stuff and you're going to want to share it. Can I be 100% honest with you? If you can't tell, I love to come up here and share whatever God has revealed to me through my study. I love this. I live and breathe for this. But sometimes, and I've been guilty of this, it's a good movie, I want to tell you all about it. I'll rush to tell you about a movie. When we went to uh, Animal Kingdom a couple of years ago, we went on the Avatar ride. It's like a seven or eight minute ride. After I went on this ride, I wanted to tell everybody about the Avatar ride. You gotta go to Animal Kingdom, you gotta go there. Right? It's amazing. Right? I'm sitting there and it's like, I'm going up and I'm going down. I'm like, I'm riding this. And I'm like, oh, this is so cool. And I wanna tell everybody about it. Right? We see a good game. We see a good move. We want to tell people about these things. We get good news. You got engaged. You want people to know. You're having a baby. You want people to know. This is good news. But here's the thing. We need to be listening to what he wants to tell us and be in that position and then what we have to do is we have to look for those moments to spread the word to spread the word God has ordained his church to let the world know about who he is and that salvation is possible through his son you are the chosen ones the Bible says this many are called but few are chosen so even listening to this message, there's some that'll say, you know what, sounds good, but you're still not going to tell anyone. And if you don't tell anyone, take a look at what happens with the uh, ladies who hear the most important message of all time, verse 8. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone. For they were afraid. Verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast out seven demons. 
she went and told those who had been with him, and they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. Who does Jesus appear to first? Mary Magdalene. The woman had seven demons. If you want to know something really cool, if you look back in the book of John, it's chapter 4. Jesus rarely told people point blank he was the Messiah. But in John chapter 4, there's a woman at a well. He tells her, this woman, that he shouldn't even be speaking to for all cultural uh, blockades that have been placed there. This is the woman that he tells the Messiah, I am he. He tells her point blank. And this woman, Mary Magdalene, she gets the meeting that most would have dreamt about. The first to see the resurrected Lord. She's the first to behold his appearance. And so what we have with Joseph is that through Joseph of Arimathea, what we see is that the way maker, well, what he does is he provides moments to be seized with the women that we just studied. It's a message to be spread and here what we have is perhaps the most important meeting in all of human history between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. It's post-resurrection, and this changes everything. How many of you have ever heard the term divine appointments? All right, divine appointments. You started talking to somebody, okay, uh, about 17 years ago I had a divine appointment in a CPR class. All right, God introduced me to my wife. It was a divine appointment. It had to be. It's the only thing that could explain uh, the way that God sort of orchestrated that whole thing. But through the Bible and through your lives, there are a series of divine appointments, people that God introduces you to, that, they, uh, that you meet them, lives that you touch, people that he brings you to. And these are these divine appointments, and nobody can, nobody can fix your schedule like God. How many of you have ever looked at your schedule and you're like, I'm sitting there and it's like, I don't know what to do. I mean, I've got, I've got uh, uh, 10 hours work to do. I've got five hours uh, to do it. And you're sitting there and you're going, okay, I, I have no idea what to do. God has every idea of what to do. What would it look like in our life if we let him take our schedule and say, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do on this day? There are the things that I have to do. You know, I have to go to work to pay the bills, Lord. But uh, I want to leave my schedule open for divine appointments. Joseph does not schedule an appointment to stand before Pharaoh and interpret his dreams. God arranges that. Moses does not schedule something with the Pharaoh to release the children of Israel. God arranges that. Daniel, Shadrach. Meshach, Abednego, all of these great uh, stories in Scripture. These were divine appointments scheduled by God. When the disciples are called, these are divine appointments scheduled by God. His calling of you, a divine appointment. So here's how this works. Start meeting with Him and let Him arrange your other meetings. And your other meetings will be more meaningful when you let Him arrange your schedule. Yeah. 
They'll be more effective. They'll be more fruitful. They'll be more energizing. They'll be more refreshing. But if we don't meet with Him, what's going to happen is this, is that we're going to have to be running on empty. Mary Magdalene goes out faithfully. And because she goes out faithfully, she has a meeting that changes, oh, I don't know, everything. So you see how this works. All right? Because of what Jesus did in the greatest act of love that the world has ever known, what we see in the story is that there are moments that are provided. There's a message to be spread. There are meetings scheduled. And all of this greater than any story that you could write for your own life. But it starts with Him. Now I want to close you today. Uh, most of you know that last year I had the opportunity to play the lion in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, and... Uh, it is still one of my favorite movies. And I just want to read you a synopsis, then we're going to go show a scene. Um, it says, In the line of the Witch in the Wardrobe, four brothers and sisters wander to the magical land of Narnia through a wardrobe in an old professor's home. They wander to the land of Narnia, which is ruled by the White Witch, BTW, she represents Satan, and it's always winter there. The Narnians are anxiously awaiting the arrival of four brothers and sisters who prophecy says will conquer the white witch and rule with Aslan, the great lion, um, the ruler of Narnia, the rightful ruler of Narnia. Aslan's the Christ character. However, when they first get to Narnia, one of the brothers, the youngest brother, Edmund, defects and goes to the white witch and betrays his brothers and sisters. And there's damage done. Because according to the magic, every traitor belongs to the white witch. Aslan makes an agreement with the witch. All right? He goes and he takes the place of the traitor on the stone table. Now the stone table, what you're going to see in this scene, is meant to be a picture of the cross of Christ. C.S. Lewis is very, very intentional about using the stone table to show us uh, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Now, with Aslan's death, and this is where the scene starts off, it starts off with him dead on the stone table. What happens is this, is that death appears to have won. Evil has had its victory. It looks like the uh, army is going to get decimated. And all hope is lost. If not for what you see in the next scene.
richer and uh, more meaningful and so what we have is this is that so the brothers and sisters that were without hope the brothers and sisters were without hope well now what happens is, is that death has lost its sting death is defeated the curse is reversed misery turns to joy tears turn to laughter darkness turns to light the war is won and because of that the the victory in the battle the uh, battle in the vi get so excited okay so <laughs> You get the point, right? Yeah. Come on. We can have victory in the battle because the war is won. There, we said it. Okay? There. Uh, hope wins, life wins, love wins because of this. Now, for us, our application is really simple, and it's what the kids are learning today. That Jesus loves them this much to have done this for us, to have died on the cross for us. When your life, when the resurrection becomes the center and the compelling of your life, everything else makes sense. Until that becomes the center, you're going to struggle. And so our life first, let's first resolve to doing this as a church. Before we do anything else, let's resolve to making our life a celebration of the fact that we serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. He walks with me. He talks with me. So I'm going to ask you to stand right now. We're going to sing a song to close us today.